The clerk of the court in the Alec Murdoch case breaks her silence. An update on the Caitlin Armstrong trial. Two of the three trials are done in the cases involving the death of Elijah McClain. A story of a landlord taking collecting rent just a little too far and then our dumb criminal of the day. Let's talk about it. Good day, everyone. My name is Scott Reich, and this is Crime Talk. Thanks for joining us. You know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't. Like if you do. Leave me a comment below, and remember to hit that little bell for notification purposes. And, you know, we're out of YouTube jail, so you can help us get back into that algorithm. We'd appreciate it. And remember, you can listen to us anytime on any of your favorite podcasting apps. All right, let's go ahead and open the record for November 7th, 2023, and first on the docket... Yes, we've finally heard from the clerk of the court in the Alec Murdoch case. And guess what she's saying? Liar, liar, pence on fire. That's her defense. All right. So today, the South Carolina Attorney General's Office filed an answer and a motion to strike in response to Alec Murdoch's uh, request for a new trial and a new judge over allegations of jury tampering by the clerk of the court. Now, as you all know, Malik Murdoch was convicted of killing his wife and son back on March 2nd after a six-week trial there in Walterboro, South Carolina. But the legal battles involving the uh, disgraced lawyer are not over. So after filing an appeal, Murdoch then filed jury tampering allegations against the Colleton County Clerk of the Court, a woman by the name of Rebecca Hill, and most recently filed a motion for a new trial and a new judge to oversee his old case as well as his ongoing cases as well. Well, on November 7th today, the Attorney General's Office, which is prosecuting all of the more than 100 state criminal charges against Alec Murdoch, filed a 25-page response to Mr. Murdoch's motion that included an affidavit from Hill denying each of the allegations. Now, the state calls Murdoch's claims broad and based on statements from one juror who was removed for dishonestly concealing her own improper communications about the case and two hearsay affidavits from Murdoch's counsel's own paralegal. Now, the state further argues several key points in their motions. First, Murdoch advances a sweeping conspiratorial theory about wholly irrelevant Facebook posts with scant evidence to support the allegations. Uh, next, while jury tampering allegations are serious and may require an evidentiary hearing, the law does not permit highly motivated convicts to put their own jury on trial. And Juror 785, who is dismissed for from the service as a juror after alleged improper communications outside the courtroom is now making the allegations against Ms. Hill, despite telling a different story when questioned earlier during the trial. Now, Murdoch's counsel did not object when juror 785 was dismissed for improper contact with other jurors and others, and a juror 785 who claims Hill tried to influence her was not on the jury that deliberated Murdoch's guilt or innocence, and therefore they shouldn't be legitimately concerned. Uh, and no other juror clearly corroborates statements made by Juror 785. Now, certain statements attributed to the uh, allegations by Juror 630 to Hill closely resemble statements made during the trial by the prosecutors. Two of the affidavits Murdoch's legal teams are using to support their arguments from are from Holly Miller, 
a paralegal working for Murdoch's attorney, Rich Harpatulian, and the state claims that they are inadmissible hearsay. Well, technically, everything is hearsay unless it's under oath in court. So the attorneys know better than that. Anyway, the affidavits regarding a juror's thoughts about evidence are not admissible under the state's criminal codes and procedures, and the state moves to strike Mr. Mr. Murdoch's claims that Ms. Hill tried to influence the jury in order to get a guilty verdict and the ultimate book deal. And they also added that only Alec Murdoch could conceive of such a confounded gambit as even remotely plausible, and he is projecting his own calculating, manipulative psyche onto a dedicated public servant in order to save himself and none of the other jurors who were willingly interviewed about the allegations by the state police reported feeling any pressure or influence to reach their verdict. So after the allegations uh, came about, state police questioned Hill and the majority of the jurors and the attorneys for the state attached to their filing an affidavit signed by the court clerk, Ms. Hill, denying the numerous allegations made by Juror 785 and Murdoch's legal team. Now, Ms. Hill denies telling the jury not to be fooled, watch him closely, look at his actions and movements in regards to Murdoch's uh, conduct during the trial. She denies telling the jury this shouldn't take us long to reach a verdict. Ms. Hill denies ever discussing evidence, witnesses, and the substance of the trial with the jury. She denies having a private conversation with a juror in a bathroom. She denies handing out media business cards to the jury during the trial and denies asking jurors their opinion on Murdoch's guilt. She denies threatening a juror and her husband. She denies withholding smoke breaks from jurors until they reached a verdict. And also attached were affidavits from nine jurors who, while they don't agree on every detail, all state they do not feel pressured in any way by the clerk of the court, Ms. Hill, to reach a guilty verdict. Also attached to support the state's case are several uh, affidavits from Ms. Hill's court staff. Now, it's unclear when the Supreme Court there in South Carolina will rule on these uh, motions and if a hearing's even going to be scheduled anytime soon. So my thought on it is, is this. We shouldn't do criminal cases based upon affidavit. Frankly, that's like civil trial stuff. Ooh, I've got an affidavit. No, you have an affidavit. And they submit that instead of saying, let's come in to court, answer questions in front of a judge uh, in a witness stand after taking the oath to swear and affirm under the pains and penalty of perjury that they're going to tell the absolute truth. Well, here we have a question of fact. Now, although it's one juror, it could be the one juror. Apparently, some of the other jurors didn't want to talk about it or didn't want to sign their name to any of the affidavits saying, oh, the clerk did not do anything improper. Apparently, several of them did. Well, guess what? It sounds like we have a question of fact to decide. Who is telling the truth? Now, everybody in the law knows there's a jury instruction that's given. It says the mere number of people appearing to support a certain proposition does not necessarily prove the proposition. So that's saying, well, I got nine people and you've only got one doesn't mean that the nine are telling the truth or telling the whole truth. So I hope the Supreme Court there orders a hearing and have these witnesses testify under oath. And in South Carolina, they still put their little hand on the Bible and see what they say. And obviously, 
the judge should probably be taken off the case as well, given his comments regarding the case in various interviews to both national TV as well as to a uh, school or his law school that he spoke at. So those are my thoughts on that. Next, an update on the yoga instructor killer. Well, the case gets a little weird, not by what's taking place in the courtroom. I mean, it's a love triangle but what took place outside. So the ex-boyfriend of the yoga teacher charged with the murder of an up-and-coming pro cyclist apparently got into a little skirmish with a member of the media as he appeared in court to give evidence. Now, there's some video um, that shows that uh, Colin Strickland appeared to purposely go out of his way to stomp on a photographer's foot. <gasps> anyway, Mr. Strickland is the former partner of Caitlin Armstrong, who is facing trial uh, at the Blackwell Thurman Criminal Justice Center there in Austin, Texas, over the murder of cyclist Mariah Moe Wilson back in May of 2022. Now, prosecutors have alleged that Ms. Armstrong targeted Wilson because they were both involved in a love triangle with Mr. Strickland. Now, while leaving the courtroom on Monday, Mr. Strickland was followed by a pack of journalists, and one of the videographers uh, takes what he seems to be a deliberate step to the left and comes in contact with a man holding a video camera. The man lets out a shout of pain, but Mr. Strickland carries on walking and says nothing. Now, according to the photographer, he has uh, pressed charges over the incident, and the man said that uh, Mr. Strickland had also tried to knock him down uh, during the lunch recess. The photographer managed apparently to catch the camera just before it fell to the ground. Now, this isn't the first time that Mr. Strickland apparently has had some sort of interaction with the press. A similar incident took place on Friday, apparently also filming uh, Mr. Strickland when he left the court. Apparently, there's another video that shows a photographer walking fast uh, to keep up the pace with Mr. Strickland. Another video shows Mr. Strickland leaving the court and um, the videographer walking fast to catch up with with uh, them. The photographer was walking backwards in front of Mr. Strickland. The cameraman didn't realize that there was a barricade behind him and lost his balance, and he tripped, eventually falling to the ground. And Mr. Strickland apparently showed no emotion, was rather unfazed, and stepped over the photographer before entering the vehicle and leaving the courthouse. Hmm, I'm not sure that's a crime. Anyway, during the testimony, Mr. Uh, uh, Strickland admitted that he and uh, had a briefly romantic relationship with Wilson while he and Ms. Armstrong were separated and that he remained friends uh, and friendly with the up-and-coming cyclist when he reconciled with Ms. Armstrong. Now, Ms. Wilson was killed on May 11th of 2022, just hours after spending time with Mr. Strickland at a poolside bar, and Mr. Strickland had dropped off the uh, cyclist at the home of her friend, Kaylin Cash, who Later that night, found Miss Wilson lying in a pool of blood. Mr. Strickland said that he had countless arguments with Miss Armstrong over her fits of jealousy. Now, prosecutors also believe that one of the guns recovered from Mr. Strickland and Miss Armstrong, because they shared a home, was the one that was used to kill Miss Wilson. Mr. Strickland testified last week that he had purchased the weapons with his ex-girlfriend in 2021 after she voiced fears about riding her bike alone. Now, we did hear during opening statements that some DNA was found on Ms. Wilson's bike, and it was highly likely to have come from Ms. Armstrong. Hmm. Well, Wilson's bike was discovered lying in the middle of a bamboo field a few yards from the apartment 
where she was found deceased. Gets interesting, those love triangles. All right, two of the three jury trials are done in the Elijah McLean case. All right. A jury found Aurora police officer Nathan Woodyard not guilty of recklessly contributing to the death of Elijah McLean, who was an unarmed black man who died following a 2019 interaction with police. Now, the jury deliberated for about a day before announcing their verdict. They believed that what Officer Woodyard's uh, defense team had raised, which was he was following his training during the encounter with Elijah McClain. Now, prosecutors argued that Woodyard placed the 23-year-old in a neck hold and failed to provide proper follow-up care as the young man lay detained on the ground, unable to breathe. Now, during the encounter, McLean was also given a large dose of ketamine to help calm him down. Now, another officer was convicted for his role in the incident, while a third police officer was acquitted. There's two paramedics that await trial in the case. It'll start in a couple of uh, weeks, and that relates to the paramedics giving the ketamine. Now, the prosecution experts in these two previous trials have said that the uh, ketamine was basically like an overdose to Elijah McClain. We'll see if the defense in that case can get a not guilty verdict. It may be a little more difficult. Now, Woodyard testified and said under oath that he trusted officers and paramedics to care for McLean as he composed himself following the encounter. And the death of the young man was, uh, he was walking home from his job on August of 2019. Uh, in the evening, police stopped him uh, because they had received a report of a, some suspicious activity or a suspicious person walking. Well, ultimately this incident left led to a statewide ban on neck holds here in Colorado. Now, throughout the three-week trial, prosecutors, as I said, failed to prove that Woodyard was trained to handle McLean somehow differently than he did on that summer night. As I noted, somebody called and said there was a suspicious person, and the police quickly became physical after McLean, seemingly caught off guard, asked to be left alone. He had not been accused of committing any crime whatsoever. Well, the uh, stop quickly escalated with officers Nathan Woodyard, Randy Rodema, and Jason Rosenblatt uh, taking McLean to the ground and Woodyard putting him in a neck hold and pressing against an artery, temporarily rendering him unconscious. Now, the officers told investigators they took McLean down after hearing Rodema say, he grabbed your gun, dude. Paramedics ultimately injected McLean with ketamine and Rodema and another officer who was not charged, held him on the ground. He went into cardiac arrest en route to the hospital and died several days later. Now, the charges came after three officers, Erica Marrero, Kyle Dietrich, and Jaron Jones, posed for photos on October 20th, 20th mimicking a chokehold close to the spot where McLean died two months earlier. They were all fired over the selfie. As they tried to appeal their dismissal, the officers argued that they sent the photo to Woodyard to try to cheer him up, but Woodyard did not respond and later told Dietrich the photos were inappropriate, according to the Aurora Police Department's internal investigation. Rosenblatt was later uh, fired for replying ha-ha to the image. Rodema was convicted in October of criminally negligent homicide in McLean's death and Rosenblatt was found not guilty of all charges. This is a highly contested case. Originally, the district attorney said, no charges, we're not gonna charge these officers. Then it got political. After the city of Aurora agreed to pay some $15 million to the uh, family of Elijah McClain, 
the governor intervened and had the attorney general uh, convene a grand jury where ultimately they have filed charges against the paramedics and three officers. Two officers have now been acquitted, one found guilty of criminally negligent homicide, and the paramedics are coming up in the next few weeks. Next, a landlord trying to collect money gets, well, it goes a little too far. A New York landlord is facing eight counts of attempted murder after he is alleged to have set fire to a unit with tenants, including children. Now, Rafkil Islam was arrested on October 25th by the New York Police Department regarding an incident that took place on September 26th. It is alleged that he set fire to the second floor apartment in the Brooklyn building because he was angry that the tenants stopped paying rent. Now, there were six adults and two children in the apartment, and they were able to escape the fire that uh, Islam had allegedly set to an interior staircase, according to the police affidavit. He's also facing charges of second-degree arson, reckless endangerment, and criminal mischief. Now, Islam had allegedly threatened to cut off the electricity and the gas for the unit and said that he would set it on fire if the tenants didn't pay him. Now, court records show that Islam filed a civil case against a woman by the name of Adriana Edwards on September 27th of this year, claiming that she owed him $26,000 in rent. The records show that Edwards was the occupant of the second floor at that address. Now, however, in a counterclaim, Edwards' uh, lawyers claimed that uh, she and her family were driven uh, from the subject premises by the fire, which is obviously is uninhabitable now. And in that counterclaim, it also alleges that the unit was infested with mice and roaches, which had lead in a wall, had windows that would not close, and had water damage among a slew of other conditions, which constitutes a breach of warranty of habitability, which comes along with most leases in a rental property. Investigators were able to identify Mr. Islam Howe, you may say. That's right. Oh, that's right. Security footage. Yes, in the area um, at about the time the fire was set. Mr. Islam, I get it. You're a landlord. You want to be paid. You're entitled to be paid. But you can't evict somebody by burning the house down or the apartment in this particular case. And finally today, our dumb criminal of the day. We've all been to the haunted houses when people have jumped out at us. Yes, that's right. That's what this involves. A Florida man, so you know it's going to be good, was apparently dressed as an FBI agent. And then while he was going through the haunted house, allegedly struck the victim in the face with a BB gun, claiming later that he thought the person was a statue and not a scaring player. Anyway, the uh, free haunted house was constructed inside the Florida home of a 47-year-old male victim. Are you brave enough in the advertisement it asked to make it through the manor and get some treats? Now, the property's front lawn was decorated as a makeshift cemetery, and police said um, Mr. Ingus Shusher entered the residence wearing an FBI jacket and uh, body armor and carrying an airsoft gun that resembled a Glock uh, pistol. Anyway, as he moved through the house, Mr. Shusher went around a corner to where the victim was standing. And while dressed in the costume, the homeowner was not acting as a role player at the time, according to the uh, arrest affidavit. Anyway, the uh, six foot four, 210 pound Mr. Shusher uh, turned away from the victim and grabbed the airsoft gun from his holster. Shusher then um, allegedly struck the victim with the gun's handle 
causing significant injury to the homeowner's eye. Anyway, Shusher apparently then was laughing and not apologetic. He told the victim he thought he was a statute. Um, the defendant then ran out of the home to the victim's front door, and uh, the victim followed him uh, to prevent him from leaving. Anyway, the homeowner, quite bloody at this time, was treated at the scene. Uh, once the uh, police and paramedic arrives, Mr. Shusher was arrested uh, for aggravated battery and possession of a bulletproof vest uh, during the commission of a felony. And yes, the airsoft gun was seized as evidence. Mr. Shusher, you are our dumb criminal of the day. Yes, I know, you think body armor, that's a crime in, in, in some states. You can't possess body armor in the commission of a felony. You can buy it, you just can't possess it. Hmm. Anyway, Mr. Shusher, next time, don't be such a little fraidy cat and go around punching people in a haunted house because you get scared. Anyway, Mr. Shusher, I bet you won't be doing that next year, and you certainly won't be possessing firearms, even the fake ones. Anyway, that's all we have for you today. Thanks for watching. Hey, we're going to do our live show tomorrow night. I have something that I need to attend to this evening, so that's what we'll do. Hopefully, you can join us 6 p.m. Mountain Time, Wednesday, Wednesday, 6 p.m. Mountain Time. All right, thanks for watching. We'll see you next time on Crime Talk.